Hi, welcome to the Tell Me What You're Proud Of podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Maggie Perry. I'm a licensed psychologist with a doctorate degree in clinical psychology. I'm also the founder of the online group therapy platform, Huddle.Care. I love helping people overcome anxiety, obsessive compulsive disorder, mood disorders, and stress. Please join us each week as we share real sessions with actual clients that reveal helpful techniques for effectively dealing with anxiety, OCD, mood disorders, and stress. We'll discuss what effective therapy looks like, sounds like, and feels like. We'll follow our guests as they overcome their biggest fears and find that despite their biological vulnerabilities, they can still live a rich, full, and meaningful life. My therapeutic approach is strengths-based and seeks to find and reinforce what clients do well to help them generalize those skills towards areas where they're stuck. My model for psychotherapy can be summed up as this. You tell me what you're proud of, and I'll help you become effective and happy across all areas of your life. Thanks for listening, and let's get the show started. Hi, this is Dr. Maggie Perry with Tell Me What You're Proud Of. Today, I'm consulting with Dr. Michelle Wicken. Dr. Wicken is a licensed psychologist with over 25 years experience. She's in private practice in Valencia, California, where she specializes in treating children, teens, and adults with anxiety disorders and obsessive compulsive disorder. Dr. Wicken is dedicated to educating the public on these conditions. She is a clinical fellow of the Anxiety and Depression Association of America. She's a graduate of the Pediatric Behavior Therapy Training Institute and the Behavior Therapy Training Institute of the International OCD Foundation. Some of the themes of my episodes with Liz included procrastination and its uh, relationship to perfectionism, not just right feelings, shame about distress, and how we develop compassion. Today, Michelle and I will talk more about those themes. So Michelle, thanks so much for being with me. Thank you for having me. Great. So why don't we start on procrastination and perfectionism? Um, Did you have thoughts about what um, Liz was saying about how she used to procrastinate and she noticed its connection to perfectionism? Yeah. So, you know, she talked a lot about getting stuck on the couch, thinking about how she was going to do laundry and, um, you know, just kind of getting stuck there. And, and it sounded like she was really thinking through how she was going to do this, which um, I was thinking to some people that could sound kind of unusual. It doesn't sound at all unusual to me working with OCD. But, uh, you know, we think about perfectionism as this pursuit of doing things very well. And here you see, you know, Liz was getting stuck you know, with, with planning out how she was going to do things. So, so she was, you know, struggling with, um, with this kind of perfectionism that gets in your way of doing things where she had rigid rules for how she was going to do things. Um, it, it had to be perfect. If it wasn't working out in her head, it was getting stuck. And you could get this feeling like if it went wrong, it was going to be really bad you know, that, that the consequences would be awful. And um, so, so this is where, you know, she, it, it sounds very much like she really, really just wanted to do a good job on things, but the, all these rules and the fear of it not going right was just holding her back. So now you get the procrastination, right? I'm so concerned that it's not going to go right. And there's all this anxiety build up to approaching a task. And now the task becomes, it starts to feel, you know, insurmountable. 
Yeah, I find that a lot of people who procrastinate interpret it as laziness and have oh, yeah. yeah, and then don't think of themselves as perfectionists. Can do you do you see that too? Oh yeah, yeah, a lot. People will just say, Well, I'm just lazy. Why couldn't I just get started and just do it? And what they what they're missing is that they're being just incredibly hard on themselves and what they actually value is they want to do a good job and they're underestimating how incredibly anxious they're getting and how that anxiety is getting in their way. Yeah, I completely agree. I think the other thing that's hard for somebody who's always thought like this to understand Mm -hmm. um, is that they, they don't realize that other people don't have the same standard and that they don't actually have to apply the standard that they're thinking of in order to do a good job. Um, so I know I talk a lot about, um, like doing a good enough job or making mistakes on purpose that can, um, sometimes rub people the wrong way, frankly, um, before they understand, but it's not that we're trying in overcoming perfectionism. It's not that we're saying that we're, um, it's okay to be mediocre, but Uh rather the standards that the clinical perfectionism is upholding is actually like becoming diminishing returns or never getting started at all. Yeah. 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 I, I, I also too, a lot of times people will say to me that they understand that other people don't have the same standards that they do, but in themselves, they can't seem to give themselves that break. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I found with Liz, as we were working together, that once she used a conscientious model, so she thought about, for instance, how her parents do laundry or her boyfriend does laundry, um, noticing that that was also okay, um, Mm -hmm. then it was like a little bit easier to um, drop the standard, at least like as an experiment. Um, Mm -hmm. And the other thing we worked on was flexibility around the task. So in terms of like, motivation to even try doing something imperfectly. It was really liberating to think about doing laundry on a weekday night rather than having to reserve a whole weekend day for it. And Mm -hmm. so if you can just do that task um, imperfectly, you might have increase in flexibility. And I think there's a lot of tasks that we see people with anxiety disorders or OCD, like refraining from getting started on because they, they feel like it has to get complete or it has to get perfect. It has to be done perfectly if they get started. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I, I think that it takes a lot of courage to do what you're talking about, to do it imperfectly. The sense of, well, am I going to be able to handle that feeling if it doesn't feel quite perfect? And um, so, yeah, so it takes, it takes courage. And, and I like how you were talking about it as, well, let's try and experiment with it because an experiment is that's, it doesn't feel as permanent. Mm-hmm. I can I can give it a try and I can see what it feels like. And then I can make a decision if I can continue or not. But it's, yeah, finding that initial courage to take the step to try it, doing it imperfectly, doing it not quite right. Yeah. And so Liz also had, in addition to consequences that she was fearing, she also had a not just right feeling. Um, mm-hmm. Do you want to explain that, what we mean by not just right feeling? Yeah. I, you know, I think just sort of stepping back with OCD, I think in, in general, there's been a perception that if you have OCD, that you're afraid of a specific consequence 
you know, something bad will happen if I don't do my compulsion. And, you know, the way that I see that uh, shown an example in the media or common ways we think might be, um, I have to check my stove or the house is going to be burned down when I come back, that kind of a thing. So some people, actually one of the people who I've learned from talked to me about core fears in OCD, right? One core fear being exactly what I was just saying, that if I don't do my compulsions, something bad specifically will happen at a measurable time. Um, but there can be other fears too, such as I'm not going to get to know and I won't be, ha- be able to handle not knowing. So just fear of, of uncertainty. Um, and also uh, a fear of I'm going to be really uncomfortable, not going to be able to handle that thing of being uncomfortable. And so when you talk about that not just right, that falls more in the realm of, hey, if I don't do things in this way that gives me this feeling, I'm going to have this this awful, uncomfortable feeling instead, and I'm not going to be able to handle it, and it might not ever go away. So therefore, I have to do these things in order to get this just right feeling instead of living with you know, this uncomfortable, awful thing forever. So, so Liz is thinking about the stuff that she needs to get done, and, and she's trying to have exactly that, that kind of just right feeling, because the alternative is never-ending discomfort. Yeah. And I like to say that the one, the most, one of the most certain things in life is that your feelings will change. Um, so, or your thoughts will change, your feelings will change, your sensations will change. And so I do think it's common for people to, but with that in mind, people do get stuck on things for a long period of time. And I don't want to minimize the suffering that comes with that. Um, but I'm also always looking for what's functionally maintaining the suffering they're experiencing. So if we start with the idea that it's avoidance, um, that creates, maintains and intensifies anxiety. And once you Mm -hmm. stop avoiding, it will eventually pass. Mm -hmm. Um, then I think I'm, I'm kind of always looking for where someone might be resisting. And part of resistance can be a mental resistance where they're just preoccupied with the idea that a thought, a feeling or a sensation isn't ever going to go away. And then they have anticipatory anxiety about how long it's going to be around. And then that paradoxically creates more anxiety. And then it seems like it's going to be around forever because of the anticipatory anxiety. So I think that that cycle, that paradox uh, can really cause a lot of suffering also. For sure. A lot of the people that, that I've had the opportunity to work with, with OCD, I was just thinking like, I was just having this little conversation in my head for a second there about, do I see this more in kids or do I see it more in adults? So I'm going to say what it was I was going to say, which is that a lot of the folks that I work with have actually never tried to hang around with feeling uncomfortable at all. And they'll have this, this belief that it doesn't ever go away. And what flashed in my head was a, a child who I worked with recently who I said, you know, how long do you think you're going to feel uncomfortable for if you don't do this thing that makes you feel just right? It'll never go away. It'll be there for the rest of my life is what their belief was. And, but it's not true for just children. Adults feel that way too. It's, and, and 
because they've never tried it out, that's what they believe. It's, it's going to hang around. Yeah. And I think it can be besides the consequences of the fear. So something like this, leaving the stove on might mean that uh, my house burns down. There's also like, I'm going to be uncomfortable for a prolonged period of time. And then that's going to get in the way of my life in some way. Like I'm not going to be able to function. I'm not going to be able to work or take care of my kids or something like that. Mm -hmm. And I find that that's often rooted in an experience where that actually occurred. So if somebody had a really intense sometimes people fear this without any past experience, but oftentimes people have actually had a depressive episode or an anxious episodes where they've actually lost functioning. And now as the feelings come back, they wonder like, how do I know that's not going to happen again? Um, and not, so I just like to remind people that oftentimes what happened in the past was a time that you didn't totally know what was happening. Um, and you likely had different skills and different understanding of what your options were for more flexible behaviors and how to get out. Um, and then I also think of beyond education and kind of having a different perspective, hopefully through treatment, um, there is an anticipatory anxiety about that. So I call it like, like sacrifice your present self for your future self. And so the reason your present self has anticipatory anxiety about whether or not you're going to get through this moment is because your past self didn't. So if your past if your past self suffered, then your current self is going to be thinking, hey, let's give you some anticipatory anxiety. Let's give you some adrenaline in this situation because we really need to make sure it doesn't, that terrible thing doesn't happen again. Um, but this is actually a time that if you stay with it, you get present and you cope effectively, your future self won't be so afraid of these sensations, thoughts, and feelings. And that's one way to gain experiential confidence. Um, do you have any thoughts about that, that pattern that I, I mean, I, I see that pattern pretty frequently. Do you have thoughts about that pattern? Um, yeah, I, I, I do think for, for a number of people, there's this experience of, yeah, this, this feeling got in my way and I stopped being able to function. Um, I, I also think that, that for some people it's, there's a belief and I don't know that it's necessarily based on an experience that they've had where they couldn't function, but there's a belief that if I feel a certain way, it's going to taint any experience that I have. So, you know, so if I feel really anxious while I'm at the um, restaurant with my boyfriend, it's going to, totally mess up the experience that I have and I won't be able to enjoy it. So it's, you know, better if I just leave the situation because it'll be tainted forever. Yeah, Liz, actually, I don't know if, I don't think she commented on it in the podcast episodes, but um, she had experiences with clothing where if her clothing didn't feel just right, then it was hard to go to a social event for the very reason that you just described. So mm -hmm. an exposure there or experiment there would be to wear something that didn't feel just right, go to the experience anyway, and, and see if actually, if you relax into wearing clothing that doesn't feel just right, if your mind is actually able to redirect your attention and mm -hmm. kind of forget that you don't feel just right, or even let yourself feel not just right the whole time and live with the possibility that it wasn't, that you have the memory of that event and that uncomfortable experience coexisting. 
um, which can also be like, it, as you learn that you can tolerate that, that can be really empowering. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, 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 I think about some people who are really creative too. And, you know, people who are artists or songwriters and, um, I've experienced some with OCD who, you know, won't write or won't write their songs or draw while they're in the middle of one of these feelings because they're concerned that forever their piece of art will feel wrong. And so I've had them experiment with, well, let's, let's see, let's, let's try if you're willing to something that, you know, it doesn't have to be your masterpiece, but let's try something and see, you know, can you create and does it feel horrible forever? And that can be such a source of confidence. Mm-hmm. And if you know that you can do the thing you love while you feel uncomfortable, um, that's really a way to overcome procrastination. Because I think circling all the way back, another source of procrastination is waiting to feel just right before you get started on something. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, Great. So why don't we transition to shame? Um, Because that was another thing that Liz mentioned um, that like once she started to learn the skills and understand how her anxiety and her OCD were impacting her life, um, once it showed up, even though she gained a sense of compassion theoretically and didn't necessarily think she was weak or crazy because she experienced anxiety. So she pretty quickly understood that this was a biological vulnerability and there was no reason to feel ashamed. And also in any given moment, as she experienced anxiety, she had a spike of shame, um, kind of thinking that she shouldn't, she should be better by now. Um, this shouldn't, um, this experience shouldn't be happening. Uh, so do you have thoughts on that? Yeah. I mean, she, she had a a lot of shame. I I really appreciated her honesty about just the different experiences that, that she went through. And I, even going back to the shame that she experienced because she, you know, she kept referencing that she was involved in health communication mm-hmm. and um, that she should know better too. Um, but, you know, one of the things that I really loved is how she talked about when she noticed shame, recognizing that that was when she was about to participate in um, OCD rituals. But that was sort of the trigger that she was about to, as she called it, going into Narnia. That's what you guys were talking about. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I just kind of got lost. What was I going to say about shame? Um, that, that um, it, it, you know, for, for her, it, it was something that really kind of held her, it held her back. Right. Mm-hmm. It, it it made it really, it made it hard for her to, um, I guess, to open up to some of the experiences of doing some of her exposure work and, um, and that kind of thing. It seems like with, with, with people with OCD, a lot of times there's this experience of shame that gets in the way of sometimes even getting treatment mm-hmm. or participating in treatment because there's, there's a little bit of a sense of, or maybe even a lot of sense of, um, I know that what I'm going through sounds bizarre, mm-hmm. you know, at, at the same time though, it feels so real and I feel like I need to, and there's that, that double thing going on. Yes, I agree. I think also when people have tried to get help and other people haven't understood, 
Um, so it's not just a self-belief that um, it's strange that I'm having these thoughts and that they're causing me suffering. Um, but, but sometimes people have actually been told by like loved ones or by other healthcare providers um, that these are not um, experiences that they can get help for or they've tried to get help and it hasn't worked. Um, so I think that can also contribute to shame um, and yeah. difficulty getting help. Yeah, that, that is for sure a reality of it, that a lot of times people don't understand OCD and they mistake it for something else and can have all sorts of consequences. But yeah, it can contribute absolutely to experiencing shame. And, um, you know, but, and then Liz had very high expectations of herself. And so it was hard for her to give herself the leeway to take the time that it needed to be able to learn the skills that, that she was learning. Mm -hmm. We, we eventually started calling it like OCD about OCD or perfectionism about OCD. Um, I also call that emotional perfectionism sometimes. So emotional perfectionism is believing that you're supposed to think or feel or have certain sensations under certain conditions. And you're, if, you know, if you're doing treatment right, or if you're getting better correctly, then you're supposed to feel a certain way. Um, or if you're a certain type of person, you're supposed to feel a certain kind of way. And treatment, from my perspective, is actually the opposite. So what you're learning is that you don't have to control what you feel. You don't have to control what you think. It's okay for any kind of internal experience to show up. And in the presence of whatever internal experience you have, you're just trying to direct your behavior towards things you care about and things that are consistent with what you want to choose to be doing rather than doing things specifically in an emotion-driven way to try to make certain thoughts, feelings, or sensations go away. Right, right. And I like the way that you characterize it as having OCD or being OCD about having OCD. Mm-hmm. Right. It, it, it just, it happens so often. It's, it's, especially for people who are trying so hard to do things so well, right? Um, Now, not only do I need to do all these other tasks well, but now I have to do treatment very well too. And am I doing it right? Um, Am I, do I really have OCD? Mm -hmm. Am I sure that that's what this is? Maybe, maybe I actually really am lazy or, you know, maybe, maybe what I thought was OCD is not OCD. And it just all these other things that come up and they contribute to the person continuing to feel worse about themselves. Yeah. And I just, I know that we're using the word shame. I was just thinking that it might be helpful to kind of define that. And so you, you can know that you're feeling shame if you want to hide, if you want to withdraw and hide. Um, There's also bodily sensations that often come with shame. Um, But I have heard them being like relatively variable. I think a lot of people feel burdened and fatigued when they feel um, shame. Some people cry. Um, I don't know, Michelle, do you have other thoughts about how people feel when they feel shame? Um, I I think that there's a lot of embarrassment. And, you know, when you say wanting to hide, sometimes it can be literally wanting to hide. And sometimes it can be, well, I'm not going to share certain bits of information. And, And that's one of the things that that I'll see is people will be afraid to share certain things that they struggle with. Um, also too, sometimes it's, I, I'm afraid, um, I'll hear, I'm afraid that you're not going to think that I'm doing a good job in treatment. 
meaning when they look at me as a therapist. Mm-hmm. I, I want to, they want to please me sometimes and they feel embarrassed. And so it'll get wrapped up and I, I want to be the best patient ever. Mm-hmm. And I want to be doing really well and I want to be doing this right. And so they feel like they, sometimes it'll be wanting to hide things that they're struggling with. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where perfectionism and shame can be tied together. Um, that if you feel shame about your own process, regardless of your content, um, then you might want to be doing something perfectly. And it might feel like you either want to be doing it perfectly for other people or for your therapist. Um, but it often comes down to like fear that it means something about your, your process means something about you and you're not good enough in some way. It seems like perfectionistic behaviors, uh, like one function of perfectionistic behaviors is to try to cope with the feeling of shame. Yeah. Yeah. And being exposed as something that you don't want to be. Yeah. So let's transition into compassion because Liz spoke openly about shame that she felt towards having OCD, but then she also spoke really, I think, wisely about how she developed compassion. Um, Did you, do you have thoughts to to get us started on compassion? Yeah, I, I, I noticed how how she really said that she had to start to recognizing what she was feeling to start labeling that, mm-hmm. that, that that was a new experience for her. Um, you know, I, I think sometimes, sometimes it's really hard to have compassion for yourself because you're so wrapped up and so close, closely wound up with your own experience that you may not even recognize the experience. You're just feeling all the feelings and, and can't even pick, you know, pick apart what they are. And you and Liz talked about how she had to step back and identify and take a look at her experience. Um, And I think that, that what that sounds like it really helped her to do, and in my experience has helped other people to do is to begin to get more of a neutral observer's experience of what's going on. You know, a lot of times we'll say to people, well, if this was your friend, what would you say to your friend? And people can step right back and they can have all this compassion for a friend or a stranger. And I, and I think that has a lot to do with being in that neutral observer kind of a position. So her having the ability to step back and take a look at what am I experiencing and, um, and, and to, to also step back and, and reframe, which did a lot of reframing about practice this is an opportunity, giving herself the, you know, the ability to take a look and see things as an opportunity to practice. And I think that just sort of gives you that, that space. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's okay, kind of, I can look at this differently. And it's kind of the opposite of shame, where mm-hmm. shame is an overwhelming feeling that tells us that we're bad in some way or not worthy in some way. If you're able to observe shame as a feeling rather than as a truth, um, I think it's much easier to arrive at compassion, especially if you can recognize, like, not only can I watch what's happening, but I recognize that other people also feel this yeah. and I'm kind of part of common humanity. Uh, I think that just um, kind of breeds compassion, both for others and for yourself. Yeah, that's an important point to Maggie, being able to observe shame. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and as you as and you said, as a feeling, not as a reality. Because I think 
a lot of times what we do is we look at feelings as though they're truth. And as opposed to feelings are feelings, and there can also be facts too. So that stepping back and looking, that's a feeling. And that, that, then that opens up and gives you more freedom to take a look at, and what are the facts as well? Yeah, I completely agree. Um, okay, well, um, I'm aware of our time. Is there anything else that um, you were listening to that you want to comment on? Um, yeah, right off the top of my head, nothing's popping up. Just, just I, it was really terrific listening to the way that she went from, uh, you know, her honesty and talking about getting stuck and then how she kind of became very compassionate with herself. It was super beautiful the way that she could look back and reflect on that and share that, that experience and that transition. So just really, really, really nice to be able to follow her journey with her. Yeah, I completely agree. And I just want to say thank you so much for your time. I think the way that you were talking about shame and compassion in particular are going to be, is going to be really helpful for our listeners. Is there any uh, words of hope that you want to offer um, to our listeners today? Words of hope. <laughs> um, I would just say, you know, believe in yourself, cultivate compassion in yourself and, and, hang in there. And even though this is, this feels like hard work, you can do hard work. Thank you so much, Dr. Michelle Wilkin. You're very welcome. Thank you so much, Maggie. Bye. Thank you so much for listening. If you felt any benefit from the show, please let us know and share it with anyone you think would also find benefit. As a disclaimer, please consult your doctor or therapist before attempting any strategy shared here. Thank you.